Once upon a time, in a faraway land, there lived a king. His name was Doug, which was just about the most regal name a king could have for himself back then. But this was a long time ago, so it was also a kind of backwards, barbaric land, duh, that still hadn't even discovered the letter U. So instead of Doug, let's call him Dog. Hey there, my name is Glenn. Glenn Ostland, that's Ostland with an O. It's Swedish and it means East Land. Or it would if the O had those two little dots over the top of it. Because without those two little dots, it actually means cheese land. So if I'm cheesy, I come by it naturally. Glenn Cheeseland. But actually, my full name is Dow Glenn Ostland II. So my initials are DGO. And if you rearrange them, you can get G O D. Yeah, which I don't really like. Now that's just scary, not cheesy. So you can arrange them again and you get. D-O-G, and that's probably a little bit more accurate. And that's the reason why the king in this story is named King Dog. But enough of that. This is an insert. It's an aside to say, hi, I'm the guy that's doing this podcast. Nice to meet you. Now let's get back to the story. One day, King Dog called together his most trusted advisors and said, look guys, because obviously this was also a land without gender equality. Barbaric, yes, I know. Look guys, This whole ruling thing is a real drag. People come to me with all their problems and expect me to fix them lickety-split. And nobody can fix problems better than me. I'm the best problem fixer I know. But they all tell me different things. Fake news. And I never know what to believe. It really sucks for me, you guys. And I'm the king. So put your heads together and fix this. I need one capital T truth to make all this crazy stuff more easier for me, okay? And get this to me quickly. I don't want to have to chop off any of your heads. So, Dog's advisors went off, intent upon keeping all of their heads. Well, except for a few advisors that the rest found particularly annoying. They kind of wanted their heads gone, but that, that's a different story altogether. But true to form, they found a solution and brought it back to the king, lickety-split. And the solution they presented was brilliant. Uh, here's how we see it, king. By no fault of your own, of course, you are troubled by ignorance, so you need knowledge of all things. You are troubled by imprecision, so you need something that is precise. You are troubled by uncertainty, so you need certainty. And we have figured out how to give you all those things. I like it, said King Dog. Keep going. So they did. Dear King, the most common problems you deal with, by no fault of your own, of course, are land disputes. If you had an exact map of the entire kingdom, a map that showed precisely where everyone's property lines are. Could we build walls around these property lines? I really like walls. Of course you could build walls, but just hear me out here. You would see all and know all down to the most precise detail and have far less uncertainty to deal with. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh, know all, see all. I like it, I like it a lot, said King Dog. Go do it. So they did. Now, I could tell you in excruciating detail how the map, in order to provide even more certainty, precision, and knowledge, developed and changed over time to include not only exact property lines and walls, don't forget the walls, and walls, but also every minute piece of property owned by any citizen. Food, clothing, livestock, kitchen utensils, 
lady friends, etc., as well as exactly where all these citizens themselves were at any given time. Last week, Japanese scientists placed explosive detonators at the bottom of Lake Loch Ness to blow Nessie out of the water. And I could tell you how in order to fit all these precise details into the map, the map had to be drawn exactly to scale until said map was as large as the entire kingdom itself. And I could tell you how in order to keep said map as accurate as possible, each citizen was tasked to update all changes to their own areas of the map in real time. And I could tell you how the results of all of this effort meant that they all just kind of began to live inside of the map itself. And then of course I could also tell you how they eventually tried to simplify the first map by creating a newer map and then another map and then another map and onward and onward etc etc. But that would take too long and I think you get the point. Or at least you get a point. I mean, that story must mean something to you, even if it doesn't mean exactly the same thing to me. But this story is my story, so I'm going to tell you how I see things right now, and like said map, I reserve the right to update and change. We're all living in a map exactly like this. Well, maybe not exactly. I mean, we at least have discovered the letter U. But the world we live in is a man-made construct an interpretive space between reality and our own limited abilities to perceive it. A limited illusion of our own constant daily creation. No, I'm not going to get all Elon Musk on you to suggest that we're living in a computer-generated simulation. Maybe. But I am going to suggest that we are at least living in a culturally generated simulation. And I'm going to suggest that you may be so caught up and ensconced in it, ensconced, my sophomore English teacher would be so proud that you may not even see that you're in it. Like that fish who doesn't know what water is because water's the only environment it really knows. We live in a world of symbols, treated as if they were things that they're symbolizing. We live in a world of fictions that we've generated ourselves to assuage our fear of uncertainty in the unknown. We mostly present these fictions to one another as if they were capital T truths and we tell ourselves stories about what percentage of things we know and what percentage of things we don't. But how can you know how much you don't know? How can you create a reliable percentage without a reliable denominator? And maybe my sophomore math teacher right now would be scratching his dandruffy head. But how can you build an edifice of certainty upon a foundation of shifting ignorance. Do you want answers to these questions? If so, you come to the wrong place, because all I got are more questions. This is the Enneagram Sandbox, an insightful yet playful look at the Enneagram through the creative mind of a joy-seeking seven. There's magic in the sand. No cats allowed. Welcome to the Enneagram Sandbox. I'm Glenn Ostland, and I started podcasting as a hobby back in 2009. Then in 2017, I turned it into a business, and now podcasting is what I do for a living. Now, I'm creating the Enneagram Sandbox as a way to explore my newly growing interest in the Enneagram in the way that I find most enjoyable and fulfilling in creating 
kind of fun, playful podcasts. So I hope that you enjoy your time exploring this with me. Now, if you already found this podcast, you're probably already at least a little familiar with the Enneagram. Uh, Ennea means nine. Gram means something that's written or drawn. So the Enneagram is basically a written symbol that's meant to represent nine essential personality types. Now, I, I first heard about the Enneagram a little over a year ago from a friend of mine when I was talking to her about an ayahuasca ceremony that she had recently attended. Now, the Enneagram doesn't really have anything to do with ayahuasca. I just thought that was an interesting little detail. But after our conversation, I went and Googled Enneagram, and I came across a great episode of the Liturgist podcast where they went through the nine personality types, and I'm going to play some excerpts from the Liturgist podcast right here. Ones on the Enneagram are uh, called the perfectionist or the reformer, and they literally see everything in terms of how it could be improved, how it could be better. Twos are helpers, and their way of seeing is based on sensing and meeting the needs of other people. Threes are called the achiever. Uh, their need is to succeed or to appear uh, like, a, like a success. You know, they just want to project this image of being this performer who just is a production machine. What matters to threes is, is that they avoid failure at all costs. Fours are people who are wedded to uh, authenticity. And they're a little disappointed, I think, in the sellout from all of us to kind of try to be like each other. They really desire to have that unique flavor that everybody has to offer. They're people who are often called the romantic. Some people say that they have a need to be special or to be unique. I would say that I'm coming to believe they have a need to be known. Fives are in the mentally centered triad or the head triad of the Enneagram with sixes and sevens. And they are called the observer uh, or the investigator. They need space and they need to perceive. Um, and our definition of perceive would be to fully understand things. The sixes are called either the loyalists or often the devil's advocates. Um, sixes um, have a deep need to feel secure. They are fearful people when they tend to get real. The fear that they experience actually is probably closer to anxiety. Um, that's sort of the dominant emotion that kind of runs, that kind of buzzes like a, you know, like a, one of those like a fluorescent light that's gone bad in the background. You know, it's just this buzz of, of anxiety that runs at a low level or in spikes from time to time. Sevens, uh, they are sometimes called the epicures. Sometimes we like to call them the enthusiasts. Um, every day to a seven is like a school snow day. They just have this remarkable, sunny, incredible, enthusiastic, optimistic, you know, the uh, unlimited possibilities of life. They, they are um, just some of the most winsome, funny, great storytellers. They are always planning the great next adventure. The eights uh, are characterized by this tremendous intensity. Uh, they just are... Uh, let me give you an example of this. When an eight walks into the room... You feel uh, almost like the song Hail to the Chief should come on. 
you, you can feel this incredible energy radiating from that person. And it's, it's really intensity. But what people often experience it as is anger. It's like this feeling that this person wants you to submit to them. It's this feeling that uh, this person has come into the space and has, has just colonized it, almost annexed it with this tremendously big presence. Nines are they're called the peacemakers or the mediators. They're, they have a real need to avoid conflict, and they need to avoid conflict at all costs. Like, because conflict can lead to disconnection in relationships. And the last thing they want is to feel disconnected from, from uh, the people they love or just from, from people in general. Now, I highly recommend that episode of the Liturgist podcast. Now, they spend about 90 minutes discussing what I just reduced down into that five-minute montage. But it's a great episode. They do a really good job with the Enneagram. And I'll be honest with you, when I first listened to it, and I listened to all nine types, I related to bits and pieces of all of them. And so my skeptical mind thought to itself, all right, this is another one of those things like horoscopes, where the definitions are specific enough to appeal to certain individuals, but vague enough to appeal to a lot of different people. Kind of like Comedian Julia Sweeney explained in her one-woman show, Letting Go of God, when she found out as a kid that her mother had lied to her about her birthday and she was actually a Libra instead of a Virgo. What was so upsetting about this piece of information was not that I was going to have to change the date of my slumber party with all of my girlfriends. What was most upsetting was that this meant I was not a Virgo. I had a huge Virgo poster in my bedroom and I read my horoscope every single day and it was so totally me. And this meant that I was a Libra? So I took the bus downtown to get the new Libra poster. But I got the new Libra poster and I started to read my new Libra horoscope. And I was astonished to find that it was also totally me. Yes, I like inserting clips into my podcasts. Now the point is that I was skeptical of the Enneagram at first. And even now, I'll be honest with you, I'm still pretty skeptical of the idea that all human personalities everywhere in the world throughout time and space can be reduced down to nine key types. Now, I'm this weird thing. I, I am a trained folklorist. Seriously, I am really a trained folklorist. I have a master's degree and most of a PhD. I finished all of my coursework but never finished the dissertation. But I studied folklore at Indiana University from 1996 to 2004. So I'm very aware of the power of myths and legend and traditional beliefs. And most of all, the role that symbols play in human culture. Which is why I opened up this episode with that story about King Dog and the incredibly detailed map. Because that's kind of how I see the Enneagram. The Enneagram is like a map of personality types, and it's based on a great deal of observation with elements of the Enneagram possibly dating back thousands of years. And I will remain respectfully skeptical about that claim as well. I don't know how ancient it really is, but I will tell you this. I really like the Enneagram because of the way that it's helping me better understand and accept myself. 
I like the Enneagram because of the way that it's helping me better understand and accept my wife and my kids and my friends. I like the Enneagram because of the way that it helps me accept the ways that we all see the world differently and how it helps me understand the most effective ways to communicate with different personality types. And probably my favorite thing about the Enneagram is the way that it helps me see the things that I can do to become a healthier, happier, less stressed out version of myself. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. All right, so here's what I'm going to be doing with this podcast, The Enneagram Sandbox. First, I'm going to publish a 10-episode season one, just to lay the groundwork of what the Enneagram is. So those 10 episodes include this one, which is an introduction and a way for you to start to discover your type if you don't already know what it is. We're going to do that in a minute. And then the other nine episodes of season one, I'll devote an entire episode to each type because I have this sneaking suspicion that I'm going to be digging around in my sandbox and that I'll find some buried ancient scrolls, I don't know, written on maybe Egyptian papyri or maybe even some ancient gold or brass plates that reveal the age-old secrets of the Enneagram. I mean, I, I, I think I may find those in the sandbox coming up. I mean, why not? It could happen because the sandbox is my own imagination, I tell you. And that's where all of this stuff gets synthesized anyway. So season one will be 10 episodes. It'll give you a foundation on the Enneagram if you don't already have one. And then what I'm going to do after those 10 episodes is just start interviewing interesting people, people that have experience with the Enneagram, people that have more experience with the Enneagram than I do. I'm going to go on an exploratory journey and interview as many people as I can. And that's really what the bulk of this podcast will be after I lay that first 10 episodes season one foundation for you. And we'll have fun with it the entire way. So anyway, to close out this episode, I want to do a little typing exercise with you. Now I'm going to read to you nine different narratives, nine different paragraphs. And what I want you to do at the end of each one that I read is to ask yourself on a scale from one to 10, how much does this paragraph describe you? Now, if it's exactly like you, then give it a 10. If it's nothing like you, then give it a one. If it's sort of like you in some ways, but not like you in others, well, then give it the number that you think is best. But if you're in a place to write this down, I encourage you to write this down so that once you've heard all of the nine different paragraphs, then you can take your top three highest scores, and the chances are that the top one of those will be your Enneagram type. But Enneagram types can be misidentified with each other. So if it's not the first one on your list, it may be the second or the third. Now, these paragraphs that I'm going to read to you, I'm taking from the book, The Essential Enneagram, The Definitive Personality Test and Self-Discovery Guide by David Daniels and Virginia Price with a foreword from Helen Palmer. It's a $9 book on Amazon. I'll provide the link on my website, which is enneagramsandbox.com, enneagram, E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M, enneagramsandbox.com. So you can get the book if you want to get the book. It's a great book. Anyway, here we go. Are you ready for the first one? All right. This is story A. 
I approach things in an all or nothing way, especially issues that matter to me. I place a lot of value on being strong, honest, and dependable. What you see is what you get. I don't trust others until they've proven themselves to be reliable. I like people to be direct with me, and I know when someone is being devious, lying, or trying to manipulate me. I have a hard time tolerating weakness in people unless I understand the reason for their weakness or I see that they're trying to do something about it. I also have a hard time following orders or directions if I do not respect or agree with the person in authority. I am much better at taking charge myself. I find it difficult not to display my feelings when I'm angry. I'm always ready to stick up for friends or loved ones, especially if I think they're being treated unjustly. I may not win every battle with others, but they'll definitely know I've been there. All right, so that is paragraph A. What do you think? Is that a lot like you? Is that not very much like you? Is it sort of like you? Give yourself a score from one to 10. All right, let's go to the next one. This one is B. I have a high internal standard for correctness and I expect myself to live up to those standards. It's easy for me to see what's wrong with things as they are and to see how they could be improved. I may come across to some people as overly critical or demanding perfection, but it's hard for me to ignore or accept things that are not done the right way. I pride myself on the fact that if I'm responsible for doing something, you can be sure I'll be doing it right. I sometimes have feelings of resentment when people don't try to do things properly or when people act irresponsibly or unfairly, although I usually try not to show it to them openly. For me, it's usually work before pleasure, and I suppress my desires as necessary to get the work done. So once again, is that like you? Is it not like you? Is it sort of like you? Give yourself a score from 1 to 10, and now let's move on to C. I seem to be able to see all points of view pretty easily. I may even appear indecisive at times because I can see advantages and disadvantages on all sides. The ability to see all sides makes me good at helping people resolve their differences. This same ability can sometimes lead me to be more aware of other people's positions, agendas, and personal priorities than my own. It's not unusual for me to become distracted and then to get off task on the important things I'm trying to do. When that happens, my attention is often diverted to unimportant, trivial tasks. I have a hard time knowing what's really important to me, and I avoid conflict by going along with what others want. People tend to consider me to be easygoing, pleasing, and agreeable. It takes a lot for me to get to the point of showing my anger directly at someone. I like my life to be comfortable and harmonious, and for others to be accepting of me. All right, what do you think? Is that like you? Not like you? Sort of like you? Give it a number from 1 to 10, and let's move on to D. I am sensitive to other people's feelings. I can see what they need, even when I don't know them. Sometimes it's frustrating to be so aware of people's needs, especially their pain or unhappiness, because I'm not able to do as much for them as I'd like to. It's easy for me to give of myself. I sometimes wish I were better at saying no, because I end up putting more energy into caring for others than into taking care of myself. 
It hurts my feelings if people think I'm trying to manipulate or control them when all I'm trying to do is understand and help them. I like to be seen as a warm-hearted and good person, but when I'm not taken into account or appreciated, I can become very emotional or even demanding. Good relationships mean a great deal to me, and I'm willing to work hard to make them happen. So is that like you? Not like you? Sort of like you? Give it a number from 1 to 10. And now, E. Being the best at what I do is a strong motivator for me, and I have received a lot of recognition over the years for my accomplishments. I get a lot done and am successful in almost everything I take on. I identify strongly with what I do because to a large degree, I think your value is based on what you accomplish and the recognition you get for it. I always have more to do than will fit into the time available, so I often set aside feelings and self-reflection in order to get things done. Because there's always something to do, I find it hard to just sit and do nothing. I get impatient with people who don't use my time well. Sometimes I would rather just take over a project someone is completing too slowly. I like to feel and appear on top of any situation. While I like to compete, I'm also a good team player. All right, is that like you? Not like you? Sort of like you? Give it a number. And now let's go to F. I would characterize myself as a quiet, analytical person who needs more time alone than most people do. I usually prefer to observe what's going on rather than be involved in the middle of it. I don't like people to place too many demands on me or to expect me to know and report what I'm feeling. I'm able to get in touch with my feelings better when alone than with others, and I often enjoy experiences I've had more when I'm reliving them than when I'm actually going through them. I'm almost never bored when I'm alone because I have an active mental life. It's important for me to protect my time and energy, and hence to live a simple, uncomplicated life and be as self-sufficient as possible. Alright, is that like you? Not like you? Sort of like you? Give it a number from 1 to 10. And now let's go on to G. I have a vivid imagination, especially when it comes to what might be threatening to safety and security. I can usually spot what could be dangerous or harmful, and may experience as much fear as if it were really happening, or just question or challenge the situation and not experience fear. I either tend to avoid danger, or tend to challenge it head on. In fact, sometimes I do not experience much fear since I go into action with little hesitation. My imagination also leads to my ingenuity and a good, if somewhat offbeat, sense of humor. I would like for life to be more certain, but in general, I seem to doubt or question the people and things around me. I can usually see the shortcomings in the view someone is putting forward. I suppose that, as a consequence, some people may consider me to be very astute. I tend to be suspicious of authority and am not particularly comfortable being seen as the authority. Because I can see what is wrong with the generally held view of things, I tend to identify with underdog causes. Once I've committed myself to a person or cause, I am very loyal to it. Alright, is that like you? Not like you? Sorta like you? Give it a number from 1 to 10. And now we're on to H. I am an optimistic person who enjoys coming up with new and interesting things to do. 
I have a very active mind that quickly moves back and forth between different ideas. I like to get a global picture of how all these ideas fit together, and I get excited when I can connect concepts that initially don't appear to be related. I like to work on things that interest me, and I have a lot of energy to devote to them. I have a hard time sticking with the unrewarding and repetitive tasks. I like to be in on the beginning of a project during the planning phase, when there may be interesting options to consider. When I've exhausted my interest in something, it's difficult for me to stay with it, because I want to move on to the next thing that has captured my interest. If something gets me down, I prefer to shift my attention to more pleasant ideas. I believe people are entitled to an enjoyable life. All right, so what do you think? Is that a lot like you, not like you, sort of like you? Give it a number from one to 10. And now we're on to I. I am a sensitive person with intense feelings. I often feel misunderstood and lonely because I feel different from everyone else. My behavior can appear like drama to others, and I've been criticized for being overly sensitive and over-amplifying my feelings. What's really going on inside is my longing for both emotional connection and a deeply felt experience of relationship. I have difficulty fully appreciating present relationships because of my tendency to want what I can't have and to disdain what I do have. The search for emotional connection has been with me all my life, and the absence of emotional connection has led to melancholy and depression. I sometimes wonder why other people seem to have more than I do, better relationships and happier lives. I have a refined sense of aesthetics, and I experience a rich world of emotions and meaning. All right, is that like you a lot? Not like you at all? Sort of like you? Give it a number from 1 to 10, and now I'm going to reveal to you what each of those paragraphs were. So paragraph A, if that's the top one of your top three, chances are you might be a type 8. If you thought that B was your top choice, you may be a type 1. If you chose C, then type 9 might be what you most identify with. D was a type 2. E was a type 3, F was a type 5, G a type 6, H a type 7, and I a type 4. You know, as I was reading through these different narratives, these different paragraphs for you here, of course I knew which paragraph was which type, and I knew which one was mine and which ones weren't, but I still found several things that I identified with in almost every single one of these paragraphs. So does that make the Enneagram kind of suspect, like Julia Sweeney's horoscope example? It was also totally me. Or does this give the Enneagram a rich complexity? Well, the more that I've learned about the Enneagram in recent months, the more that I lean towards rich complexity. Because as a seven, I've learned that I have some eight characteristics and some six characteristics. And in Enneagram speak, because those numbers are on either side of my predominant type, they are called wings. And your wings can also influence your core personality type. Now, there are also lines and arrows on the Enneagram where your type typically goes when responding to stress or in times of comfort and security. So as a seven, I'm now able to better understand why in times of stress, I act more like a one. 
why I have that critical voice that I so often have in my head and why I take the perfectionistic attitude and attention to detail that I put into projects that I really enjoy, like podcasts like these. Now, it also helps me understand why in times of security, I seek solitude and analytical intellectual pursuits like a five. And what I've learned as I've begun speaking with people with much more experience in the Enneagram than me is that every single one of us actually has access to all of the virtues and vices, all of the characteristics, all of the qualities, all of the traits represented by this symbol, this map of personalities, this Enneagram thing. So what the Enneagram shows us is the habits and the patterns that we've developed over the course of our lives. Habits of attention, habits of mind, habits of emotion, those tactics and strategies that have helped us navigate our way through the world and are wonderful because of the help that they provide to us, but are also limiting in the way that they keep us from experiencing other possibilities and options. And one of the things I like about the Enneagram is the promise that you can experience all of those things. You can get to a healthier place and have a more full and enriching life, less limited. So over the course of these next nine episodes that we're going to call season one, we will explore each of these types in much more depth. And in the interviews that follow season one, we'll get even more depth and breadth of experience and interpretation from people who have made the Enneagram an integral part of their lives. Now there's a lot of depth to mine in the study of the Enneagram, so I'm grateful that I have this sandbox to dig and play in. And I invite you to come and play with me in it as well. And if you don't mind, would you take a few minutes after this episode is over, Go to the website, EnneagramSandbox.com, and fill out a brief survey that I'm going to put with this episode, episode number one, because I'd like to know more about those of you who are listening that will be playing in this sandbox with me. So thank you for playing with me today in the Enneagram Sandbox. Now, if you like what you heard, please recommend this podcast to your family and friends and share this episode through social media. You can also give us a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes or any other podcast rating service that you use. Thanks again for playing. See you next time in the sandbox. And remember, no cats allowed. The Enneagram Sandbox is produced by Ear Candy Productions. Looking for help with a podcast for yourself or your business? Check us out at EarCandyProduction.com. That's EarCandyProduction, no S, dot com. Ear Candy Productions, audio never tasted so sweet.